0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything.
1: I'm not new to this place. I stand here tonight, having served as long as about any one of you have ever served here. But I've never been more optimistic about our future, about the future of America. We just to remember who we are. We're the United States of America, and there's nothing, nothing beyond our capacity if we do it together. God bless you all and may God protect our truth. Thank you.
0: Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 554 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. And of course, that was a small clip from the State of the Union address that President Joe Biden delivered to a joint session of Congress last night in obligatory fashion. We're going to delve into it, and we're going to do a fairly comprehensive treatment of several sound bites and clips and a little bit of a response. I want to think through some of the things that he's saying with you, and let's consider what is the truth, what is good, what is wise, how should we think about these things, what should we understand as having been said, and what does that mean? What does that translate to? for our expectations or how we should then live. But before we get into that, I'm going to go ahead and read for you a article from adfontesjournal.com by a certain Miles Smith on the men to make a state must be religious men, a quote which he shares with us, which I think is worth considering, not least in relation to the State of the Union address that Biden delivered last night. But not just, right? Not least, but not just. So Miles Smith writes, February 6th, so the day before yesterday, 2023, the historiography of American religion has routinely associated religious politics and religious social movements with so-called evangelical fervor. Religious, political, and social engagement by evangelical Protestants have been treated as outpourings of revivalism or pietism by historians who understandably note the presence of evangelical Christians in the leading reformist movements of the 19th century, particularly the abolition of slavery and temperance. Randall Balmer and Laura Winner, in their Protestantism in America, argued that the largest impetus for the quote, frenzy of charity, end quote, that characterized Northern society came from, quote, evangelical fervor, end quote. Evangelicals, particularly in the Northern states, forged a close link between faith and good works. In Northern cities, evangelicals were beset by problems. They blamed on immigration, alcohol, Catholicism, and general indifference to the Bible and the church. Northern evangelicals believed, according to Balmer and Winner, the only cure was Protestant piety. Henry Clay Fish, a Baptist minister, moaned that nothing could save northern cities but a quote, powerful revival of religion. End quote. The continued reliance on evangelical as a taxonomical tool to describe aspects of American Protestantism obscures the fact that the necessity of a religious politics was not an assumption of a particularly revivalist or pietistic sect of American Protestants, but was an expectation that extended across Protestant groups in the 19th century. George Washington Doan, Episcopal Bishop of New Jersey and a convinced high churchman, took aim at both irreligion and pietism in his 4th of July address at Burlington College in 1849. Doane's aims were neither revivalistic nor pietistic. They were, in fact, much more modest, but at some time, more foundational. Religious leadership was a baseline necessity for the maintenance of the state. The men, to quote Doan, the men to make a state must be religious men. States are from God. States are dependent upon God. States are accountable to God. To leave God out of states is to be atheist. End quote. Doan denied that he argued for ritualism or pietism as a necessity for the state. He was not applying a social expectation of even a specific type of piety, nor was he asking citizens to swallow hypocrisy. Quote, I do not mean that men must can't. I do not mean That men must wear long faces. I do not mean that men must talk of conscience while they take your spoons. (laughs) Instead, Doan spoke of men who feel and own a god, end quote. He precluded a merely theistic construction by applying Protestant conceptions of sin to the men who should lead the state by referencing men who feel and own. Their sins. I speak of men who know there is a hell. Leadership of the state, acquainted with Protestant conceptions of sin, would naturally also know Protestant conceptions of atonement. Doan envisioned men who, quote, think the cross no shame. I speak of men who have it in their heart as well as on their brow. The men that own no future. The men that trample on the Bible, the men that never pray, are not the men to make a state. End quote. Assertions that the state needed religious men for its fundamental maintenance were not new, particularly revolutionary, nor inconsistent with religious disestablishment. Mark David Hall argued that the revolutionary generation retained a belief in the necessity of a religious public square. Doan And most religious Americans believed that religious men were necessary for that maintenance. His was not a plea for religious revival, nor a scolding demand for religious activism in pursuit of utopia or sectarian theocracy. They were pleas from a cleric for something as fundamental as societal maintenance and stability. And there you go, right? There is the article in its entirety. There are some footnotes here with references. But if you would like to read it more slowly for yourself, I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can check it out. Miles Smith's piece over at Ad Fontes Journal. But moving on, I think enough said about that, except to add thank you to J.P. Chavez for sending it to me the other day. I have started another lecture listening to another lecture from John Taylor Gatto, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Institutionalized Schooling. And this will come up as we talk about Joe Biden's State of the Union address from last night. But briefly, I just want to put in another good word for John Taylor Gatto. This is the second of his lectures I've listened to or begun to listen to. I listened to another one here recently and did our last podcast episode about that, in large part, about John Taylor Gatto's A Short Angry History of Modern Schooling. But this one, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Institutionalized Schooling, is from 1998. And I note his his honesty, for one thing, but his not pulling any punches. I note that and I ask you, if you are on the fence still about public education and about homeschooling and about parochial schools, I ask you to consider if we would not regard as authoritative the testimony of history, of quotes, of dates, of names that John Taylor Gatto brings in his work, if we would not count it as persuasive that he was not just a public school teacher in New York City for decades, but that he was an award-winning and universally acclaimed, I'm sure right up until he started trying to dismantle the American public education system, he was universally acclaimed as being a highly effective and competent teacher. But then to hear him talk, he's actually far from proud of that fact, he is wanting to make things right because he sees what it was that he was sent there to do as not being so much, first and foremost, to educate these children as to provide them with obedience training after a fashion. Obedience training for the progressive vision of what America should be like. And as such, he doesn't see as progress the consequences spiritually, mentally, emotionally, for these kids that are being taught in the American public schools. He doesn't see it as progress that so many of them are not curious, but are lonely, are emotionally dependent, are brutish, lack morals, they lack moral instruction, and you can't fix that because you're not allowed to talk about religious faith in the public schools. Certainly not. The Christian faith in any kind of a positive sense, but that is the same thing as saying that you're not allowed to speak of the Christian faith in any kind of an effective way that would actually transform or instill those beliefs, that owning of our sin and also the Protestant conception of atonement for our sin and where that comes from. You're not allowed to instill that in children, and if they're not getting it from you, and they're not getting it home from their parents who uh, also were given this supposedly values neutral education, well, then they're just not going to get it at all. I'm impressed by John Taylor Gatto's way of describing the problem with American public schooling, compulsory schooling. I'm impressed by his command of the facts And his way of articulating those facts. But again, I would ask you, if you don't find the testimony of a man like John Taylor Gatto to be persuasive, what would you find persuasive? If you don't find the statistics and the names and the dates and the quotes that he brings to bear persuasive, what would you find persuasive? And if your answer is nothing, well, then you are being willful. Then you are unpersuadable. And what if the truth is other than what you insist on believing? What if actually the public schools are not something in need of saving? They are something we need to save our children and ourselves and our country from. That's John Taylor Gatto's position. That is my position. And this is why we homeschool. And oh, by the way, I got a notification on Instagram this morning when I very first woke up or before I could even be uh, accurately described as awake, before I'd had my first cup of coffee, I got a notification on Instagram that someone had tagged me in a post. And I want to read this for you because I was very encouraged by it. And a big thank you to the one who tagged me. Joy in Play Life, quote, Written from a dad's perspective, this book is bold in sharing all of the concerns and issues with public schooling nowadays as well as explaining the numerous benefits and advantages in homeschooling our children. The author, Garrett Mullet, was homeschooled himself and shares his own experiences, as well as how he and his wife are now homeschooling their own children. Have you read this book? Let me know your thoughts below. And she's got a picture of the front cover of my book. And also, it looks like gave it five stars, which is cool. And thank you for that. Joy and Play Life. She's got a few excerpts here. One, for instance, uh, highlighted is a quote from my book. The first step to overcoming insecurity with regards to homeschooling your child is asking how much of your insecurity stems from fear of other people disapproving and how much of your insecurity bears any relation to trusting in God. Another excerpt she's got highlighted here is quote creativity and problem solving cannot exist without freedom. Yes, liberty can be overwhelming in combination with uncharted I think that was uncharted and she might have mistyped that. Sorry. <laughs> in combination with uncharted territory and a multitude of options, but it can be exciting if we choose to see it that way, and we should so choose. And then also too, she's got another quote from me in the book, homeschooling is easier than it looks, but it does not have to be easy in order to be worth it. One last one, but still greater than academic excellence. We want our children to develop good character. We want them to become virtuous and noble. We want them to not only learn right from wrong in an intellectual way, as though knowing counts for anything in and of itself. And so again, thank you to joy in play life on Instagram for reviewing and plugging my book to your followers on Instagram. I really appreciate that. Do check it out. You can get it on amazon.com, but if you do a generalized search, you can find it lots of places. I know that Hoopla is buying copies of my book here and there, and so you might be able to find it through the Hoopla app from your local library. Pull up the ebook version of it. That would be one way for you to experience it, but it's available on e-reader from a lot of platforms. So do check it out if you would be persuadable, please don't just be persuaded of whatever it is that you hear first or whatever seems to be the status quo, be persuadable of the truth. If it turns out that the majority of us are under a kind of hypnosis, under a kind of spell with regards to the education of our children, but moving on from education, let's talk briefly about a question that White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was recently asked about Joe Biden and his approval rating. What are the polls looking like with regards to Joe Biden? I'm going to go ahead and play a clip here and you can hear for yourself. I won't have to read it for you in her voice or (laughs) anything weird like that. But she was recently asked by the ladies over at The View, about hmm, how they're uh, feeling concerning the direction of the country. How is the country doing? How are Americans feeling about the State of the Union? Here's that exchange.
2: With record low unemployment and inflation cooling, the president is claiming the state of our economy is strong, but 41 percent of Americans think they are worse off financially than they were when President Biden took office. The most negative response to that question in the history of ABC polling. Now, if the economy is strong, why don't more Americans feel that way? Because it's been a very hard couple of years. As I said, the president's going to, in his state of the Union, speak to folks who are still struggling. When the president walked into this administration, the economy was tanking, COVID was taking over, was ravaging our country, and he took action to make sure that we got the economy back up and running. Look, when you think about the economy, what the president has done is transform the way we think about it, right? We used to talk about trickle-down economy. He doesn't say that. He doesn't believe in that. He believes in building an economy from the bottom up, middle out. And that's what you've seen. And I've talked a little bit about the data, the data points, which is uh, wages are up, unemployment is at a historic low, more than 50 years. You think about the more than 12 million jobs that we've created. You see manufacturing jobs are coming back. More than 800,000 jobs are already coming, uh, being created in the manufacturing industry. Those things matter. They are really important. That's what you're going to hear from the president about the tremendous progress that we have made. But we understand that Americans are still feeling some of that struggle. They're still feeling what we have gone through. One of the worst pandemics in a century. That is the reality uh, that we are in. But I'll say this lastly, which is polls go up, polls go down. We all know this. I know you all talk about this very uh, very often. So we know that's a reality. But what we're going to focus on are the data points that I just laid out. How we are going to continue to deliver for the american people and let me just say also this is in 2020 during the primary they said president biden or vice president biden at the time wasn't going to become wasn't going to become the nominee in 2022 they said the poll said hey you know what it's going to be a bloodbath it's going to be a red wave and you're and and we're going to see something another shellacking if you will That didn't happen. So, again, we're not going to pay too much attention to the polls. We are are going to meet the American American people where they are and continue to do what we can to give them a little bit of breathing room, which is something that the president says every time we talk about the economy or he talks about the economy.
0: Okay, so allow me to translate, if I may. 30% of Americans are just plain wrong. They're They're just plain wrong about how they feel and it's just that it's just feelings. It's just feelings. They're feeling um, down because it's been a hard few years, but don't worry. Joe Biden is going to build this country back better from the bottom up. Never mind that in order to do that, he has to be at the very, very top. And he's also got to ram through, uh, whatever it is that he wants and whatever he thinks best from the top, uh, over and against the objections and complaints and, uh, <laughs> counter-proposals of his political opponents and the, I would say, flyover country Americans who are continually marginalized, mocked, ignored when possible, but when they can't be ignored, ridiculed and put down and maligned. Never mind all of that. We're going to build back better from the bottom up from the very top. Got that? Does that make sense? From the very top, he's going to build back better from the bottom up. Hmm. That seems like doublespeak. Actually, can I just can I just say with respect, KGP? I mean KJP, KGB, KJP. Uh, they're so close. Uh, can I just say, I I don't believe you. I I don't believe you. I don't trust you. I don't trust you when I personally, and I can't speak to every metric that's being cited here and tell you whether it's true or not. I can tell you just my own personal experience as a breadwinner for my wife and myself and our eight children, I am making more money than I have ever made in my life and yet I feel as pinched as ever financially. I am making more money than I have ever made in my life, and we are living paycheck to paycheck and hoping and praying that something breaks loose and something turns around so that we can start to make progress on paying down our debts and building up savings and buying a house instead of renting indefinitely. I am making more money than I have ever made in my life, more money than I ever would have dreamt. When my wife and I first got married back in 2006, November 25th, 2006, I would have never dreamt that I would be making this much money per hour as I am right now. And after a decade plus working in the oil and gas industry, I have experience all over the Rocky Mountains. I have connections up in Canada. I have connections down in Texas. I have connections all over. I am sought after. I am talent that big oil companies want to hire, third-party contract companies want to hire, automation experts outside of oil and gas want to hire. I am sought after for my skills and my experience, and yet it's still not enough to keep up with the rate of inflation. It's not enough. Now, I've got eight children, and as we'll get into when we talk more specifically about the State of the Union address from last night, there are tax credits for parents like myself who have children, and I'm glad that there are tax credits for parents like me, fathers like me, so that we get to keep a little bit more of our wages. But here's the nasty little secret about inflation. Inflation is a tax. Inflation is a tax. And therefore, it's just a lie to say that there are no new taxes. Taxes haven't gone up on anybody making under $400,000 a year. It's just a lie because inflation is causing the cost of my groceries, my utility bills, the fuel that we put in our vehicles, the books that we buy to homeschool our kids, the rent that we pay on the house because we can't buy a house. <laughs> uh Literally everything, literally everything is more expensive because this administration and the Democrat party in particular is addicted to spending money that they don't have. And they print it out of thin air when they can't get it in taxes. When they print it out of thin air to fund their welfare state and to fund their foreign policy initiatives and to fund their research and development, to fund... More to the point, they're social engineering, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. When they print money out of thin air, they devalue our currency. They devalue the dollar. Therefore, they devalue the value of our wages relative everything else that we would possibly need to buy first and foremost and then want to buy thereafter. Taxes have gone up for everyone. How much have they gone up? Take a look at the inflation rate. That's your answer. In part, that's not even the whole answer, but that's at least at bare minimum how much your taxes have gone up since inflation is a hidden tax on everyone. The only people that inflation is not a tax on, the only people who are not taxed by inflation are the ones who are completely self-sustaining and off the grid. They have their own electricity uh, generation, Capacity. Their utilities, therefore, are non existent because they have their own water well, they have their own solar panels or hydro or or they just don't have electricity. They grow their own food in a greenhouse and they've got livestock, or they hunt, they make their own clothes. They, you know, like, <laughs> the only people that inflation is not taxing are the ones who are not participating in this economy. So it's disingenuous. Corinne, Jean-Pierre, with respect, what you're saying is not true. And the 30% who are saying that they feel like the state of the country, the state of the union, the state of the economy, the state of their personal economy is worse since Joe Biden took office, they're not imagining it. Things are worse since Joe Biden took office. And oh, by the way, let's go back and let's talk briefly about how the economy was doing right before Joe Biden took office. It was primarily Democrats who wanted to shut everything down, lock everything down, push mandates, make everyone hate each other, censor anyone who objected, anyone who complained, fine or jail people who violated or disobeyed the mandates and the lockdowns, throwing them out of work, destroying their small businesses, The reason why the economy was in the bad shape that it was when Joe Biden took office is because Democrats made it that way by being control freaks. And I think, and a lot of Americans agree with me, a lot of Americans don't just feel this way. We know it. We saw it. We cannot unsee what we saw. We cannot unhear what we heard. We believe that the Democrats were control freaks in the way that they were at the time that they were in particular, to drive Republicans and especially Donald Trump from power so that they could do whatever they want to do so that they could stop Republicans and particularly Donald Trump from dismantling their network and their agenda, both here in the US and around the world. And so in a certain sense, it's like if you kept seeing headline after headline about hero firefighters and how we need to put more money into a new police station and a new fire station and new fire engines and new police cars. And isn't it great that we have emergency responders who are putting out all these fires? We keep having all these fires around town, around the city, around the county. And look at these hero firefighters who are putting out blaze after blaze after blaze. We need to invest more money into building them up and building up their capacity to protect us from house fires. And you say, wow, that's amazing. Wow. These guys, these guys, they are heroes. Yep. And they are, unless it also comes out that they are the ones going around or a certain member of the fire team, maybe the fire chief is the one going around and setting the fires so that they have something to put out. Because if that turns out to be the case, then actually At least that guy is not so heroic. And the solution to the problem is not, first and foremost, to pour more money into the fire department. The solution is, first and foremost, that guy needs to be arrested and thrown in jail so that he stops starting the fires. You can't start the fire and then put the fire out and say, hmm, you're welcome. Aren't I great? If you start the fire and then you put it out, There's no possible way in which you've actually improved things. I mean, if you're burning stuff down that you didn't think needed to be there anymore so you could build back better, well, then you're Emperor Nero from ancient Roman days. He was widely suspected of having started the fire in Rome so that he could rebuild a certain neighborhood the way that he wanted to. And then he blamed it on the Christians. In a stroke of evil genius, he blamed it on the Christians and used that as a pretext to go after the Christians and to persecute them violently. There is no new thing under the sun, ladies and gentlemen, and that applies to the Democrats, that applies to this administration in the White House. But moving on, let's talk briefly about an article by Joseph Curl over at the Daily Wire highlighting a New York Times quote on Kamala Harris. He wrote this piece and published it yesterday. And here is the quote, briefly, the painful reality for Miss Harris is that in private conversations over the last few months, dozens of Democrats in the White House, on Capitol Hill, and around the nation, including some who helped her to be put on the party's 2020 ticket, Said she had not risen to the challenge of proving herself as a future leader of the party, much less the country. Even some Democrats, whom her own advisors referred reporters to for support of quotes, confided privately that they had lost hope in her. End quote. So that is to say, you have a scenario where journalists are going to Kamala Harris's staff and asking. Who can we talk with to get some positive quotes about your boss, vice president Harris. And even those Democrats quietly privately are telling the New York times and other journalistic organizations, supposedly journalistic organizations. Yeah. She is just not getting it done. She is not doing well. Very curious, very curious. I mean, Fair, fair, but what's going to be done about it now, where Where does it go from there? My honest answer, my honest prediction is that it will go pretty much nowhere openly and honestly, but that in both the case of Corinne Jean Pierre and Kamala Harris, you have two persons who have been put in the positions that they have been, not because of skill but because of intersectionality, first and foremost. They check boxes, not based on competence, first and foremost, but based on who is likely to vote for Democrats based on the color of skin and gender and even sexual orientation. And insofar as that is still a sacred cow for the left and for Democrats, it's still so useful as they see it, they're not going to let it go. They're going to double down and anybody who criticizes it. And this is part of the reason why they were put in those positions is anybody who criticizes it can be accused of sexism, racism, homophobia, and can therefore be silenced. You can silence your critics. You can silence your political opponents. You can silence those who would present a different idea just by calling them sexist, racist, homophobic. And then you don't even have to debate the merits of your position. You can't criticize their work, and also you can't criticize the larger agenda of this administration because intersectionality, because actual racism went into the appointment of these two women. Actual sexism went into the appointment of these two women. It's exploitative. It's mercenary. And it's hurting the United States of America. It's hurting our people. This is bad for the soul. This is the opposite of what the Miles Smith piece over at is talking about, where we need men who are religious, who have a God that they believe in and obey and fear appropriately. They believe that there is a hell and they believe that their sin, apart from the grace of God, will send them to that hell. And therefore, they are mindful and they are reverential and they are circumspect. The way that the Democrats appoint who they appoint and run who they run and propose what they propose and defend what they defend is godless, plain and simple It is the opposite of what Miles Smith's article is driving at, and that's why we need to meditate on what the actual solution would require, namely bringing the Christian faith back into the public square, having a distinctly decidedly religious public square, not one where we put up with hypocrisy. What was the quote from Doan about the stealing of spoons? (laughs) It's It's a great a great word image here. I do not mean, he says, that men must wear long faces. I do not mean that men must talk of conscience while they take your spoons. <laughs> it's like, yes, yes, thank you very much. Boy, doesn't that just capture it. That's not what people like me are arguing for. That's not what men like George Washington Doan have been arguing for since this country's founding. But... Nevertheless, let's move on to talking about the State of the Union address itself. I've got, oh, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 15 highlights that I hope we've got time to get to. And I'll play some audio for you and then we'll respond. That's a lot. It's a lot. I know. And if you didn't listen to the State of the Union address because it stresses you out, it's too frustrating, it's too upsetting, hopefully you'll bear with me and we can talk about this in a very matter-of-fact way, in a way that maintains equilibrium, and we can learn to talk about these things. If we can't learn to hear and counter what it is that the left is saying, then they've got it. And if we believe that they've just got it and that's the end... Well, then they they really have it and it's going to go very badly for us. We should repent of that attitude because I think that that is gross negligence and it can't be borne. It can't be tolerated. We shouldn't tolerate it in ourselves. We shouldn't tolerate it in one another. We need to tackle these challenges head on if something's going to be done about them. But briefly, before we get into the actual highlights from the State of the Union address last night, there was one word and one phrase that came up way too often, and you no doubt in these 15 sound bites, you will get at least a few instances of these, but the word folks came up again and again and again and again and again in President Biden's State of the Union address last night. He kept saying it. He kept saying folks, which... It was odd for its repetitiveness. It's almost like there was some kind of a drinking game that was set up by the speech writers and they wanted to get absolutely plastered. (laughs) If you took a drink every time Joe Biden said, folks, last night, you did not make it through the speech. I guarantee it. But there was a phrase as well. And this phrase is odd to me. You could almost call the State of the Union address by this phrase because it came up again, so often, again, and again, and again, finish the job, finish the job, finish the job. It's odd. Right? Why finish the job? Why, folks, why finish the job again, and again, and again, and again, emphasis through repetition? Yes. Yes. I don't think just sloppy. I don't think that somebody just didn't notice how often they were throwing these in there. I think somebody very intentionally, strategically included these words and phrases in the State of the Union address to try and evoke a certain emotion and also to give the whole thing a kind of cohesiveness, which otherwise it might not have had. If the common theme was, folks, finish the job, who are the folks? And what is the job that they would be finishing? Those are important questions that we should be asking as we are considering this State of the Union address. But another thing on that note, before we get into the highlights, in that clip that I played for you at the top of this episode of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, in that clip, notice how he ends his speech. God bless you all. And God Protect our troops. He didn't say, God bless America. He didn't say, God bless the USA. He didn't say, God bless the United States of America. No variation on that. It was, God bless you all and God protect our troops, which is curious because, again, who are the folks and what is the job that is being finished? Is it just the people in that room who would be blessed and everybody outside of that room is what? Right? What? And I would presume with regards to God protect our troops, the concern has a lot to do with the shooting down of that Chinese spy balloon here very recently, and also the plans to send American tanks to Ukraine to fight against the Russians. I would presume that God protect our troops is in relation to predictions that we might be at war with Russia and China, Outright, not proxy, very shortly, as in before the conclusion of Joe Biden's first and hopefully only term as president. But it's curious. It's curious that Joe Biden would say, God bless you all and God protect our troops. Very curious. It's obligatory. I think this is the talking of conscience while stealing your spoons, but nevertheless. Let's move on. The first clip I'm gonna play for you is from about the 40 minute mark where President Biden is talking about our tax system. Take a listen.
1: Look, I'm a capitalist. I'm a capitalist, but pay your fair share. I think a lot of you at home, a lot of you at home agree with me and many people that you know, the tax system is not fair. It is not fair. Look, the idea that in 2020, 55 of the largest corporations in America, the Fortune 500, made $40 billion in profits and paid zero in federal taxes? Zero? Folks, it's simply not fair.
0: To quote Thomas Sowell, what exactly is your fair share of what someone else has earned? What exactly is your fair share of what someone else has earned? It's a rhetorical question, but really, by all means, please answer. The presumption that we all should pay taxes and that's fair is upside down and inside out because it implies that the government is God. How many Americans believe that we should tithe the first 10% Of the fruit of our labors to the church. And yet, by contrast, how many Americans are convinced by this kind of rhetoric that we should pay the first 5, 10, 15, 20, 25% of the fruit of our labors to the state and federal government? Where is your notion of fairness coming from and what informs it, sir? What exactly is your fair share? Really, truly, that's an important question we need to be asking. And also, as you can hear, there's a hubbub in the background. There was throughout the speech, actually, a lot of shouting, I presume from Republicans, although I can't see in the video that I was watching from Right Side Broadcasting on YouTube. I presume it's Republicans who are loudly objecting when he makes this claim that it is very inflammatory about the largest corporations in America paying no taxes. I think you and I would agree that we all are paying taxes left, right, and center. (laughs) Some people are particularly good at finding ways to minimize their tax bill. Some people do pay next to nothing in taxes, but again, it's disingenuous to say, that anybody is not being taxed because inflation means we are all being taxed quite a lot as a matter of fact, but let's move on.
1: Let me be crystal clear. I said at the very beginning under my plans, as long as I'm president, nobody earning less than $400,000 will pay an additional penny in taxes. Nobody, not one penny. (laughs) Well, let's finish the job. There's more to do. We have to reward work, not just wealth. Pass my proposal for the billionaire minimum tax. You know, there's a thousand billionaires in America. It's up from about 600 in the beginning. Of the but no billionaire should be paying a lower tax rate than a school teacher or firefighter. Well, I mean it. Think about it. <clears throat> okay,
0: I'm thinking about it. You, you said to think about it? I'm thinking about it. Let's think about this. <laughs> Pay close attention to the precision of language here about tax rate, and now consider overall taxes actually paid. If I am being taxed because I drive on the roads, for instance, am I driving on the roads a hundred times as much if I go from making six figures to making seven figures? I'm not making seven figures, just to be very clear, unless you're including decimal places, but nevertheless, Am I using the roads a hundred times as much? Also too, am I not generating enough? If I'm being taxed, let's say, let's just say for nice round numbers, if I'm being taxed 10% and I make a million dollars a year, that's $100,000. If I am earning $100,000 a year and I'm taxed 10%, I'm paying $10,000. If I'm taxed 12.5%, I'm paying Do you mean to say to me that it's unfair if I'm paying $12,500 at $100,000 salary and some guy who's making a million dollars a year is paying $100,000 in taxes per year? That's somehow unfair. He's not paying his fair share. He's paying as much as I make in a year in taxes, even if it's a lower tax rate, he's paying more overall taxes. And what's he doing with the money that he keeps? Oh, by the way. And how is it that he's actually making this money in the first place? Oh, by the way. That's what I'm more concerned about. That's what I care more about. Is he making that million dollars a year because he's a good businessman, because he's got a good product, he's got a good company, because he's treating his customers and his employees and the community well, and that's profitable? If so, well, then I hope he can keep more of his money so that he can invest it right back into his business, so that he can hire more people, so he can raise wages for the best talent, so he can give bonuses to his employees, so he can buy new equipment, so that he can invest in infrastructure, so he can expand, so that he can donate to causes that he cares about in his neighborhood or in his city or in his county or in his state. Again, let's think about it. Yeah, absolutely, let's think about it. What exactly is your fair share of what somebody else has earned, unless your contention is that they have not earned it. But if your contention is that somebody making a million dollars a year hasn't earned it, what is that based on? What is your standard? What is your rubric? Is that rubric fair? And is it true? And is it good? That's what I care more about than how much you're taxing somebody who makes way more money than I do or has way more wealth, or has a much bigger <laughs> uh, scope of responsibility in life over a lot more people. That's what I care more about. Let's, let's do think about it. But I think if we think about it really truly, we can't support your plan. Also too, what was I saying earlier about the claim that there would be no new taxes on anybody earning over $400,000 a year? It's patently false when you look at inflation rate. The inflation rate is taxation, albeit a dishonest kind, a deceptive kind that you don't actually have to call a tax, but it is. It's a tax on everything. If inflation is at any point 9%, well then that's 9% increase in taxes across the board. Moving on. Let's talk through a little clip shortly after this one that I just played for you, where he speaks about big oil.
1: Have you noticed big oil just reported its profits, record profits? Last year they made $200 billion in the midst of a global energy crisis. I think it's outrageous. Why? They invested too little of that profit to increase domestic production, And when I talked to a couple of them, they say, we're afraid you're going to shut down all the oil wells and all the uh, oil refineries anyway, so why should we invest in them? I said, we're going to need oil for at least another decade, and that's going to exceed (laughs) and beyond that. We're going to need it. Production. If they had, in fact, invested in the production to keep gas prices down, instead, they used the record profits to buy back their own stock, rewarding the CEOs and shareholders. Corporations ought to do the right thing. That's why I propose we quadruple the tax on corporate stock buybacks and encourage long, long-term long investments. They'll still make considerable profit.
0: Now, okay, a number of things. Okay, so a number of things. First off, I've worked in oil and gas for over 10 years. I'm coming up on 11 years in May, actually. And I have worked for some of the biggest oil and gas companies, biggest American oil and gas companies in the world. I've worked for ConocoPhillips. I've worked for Chevron. I've worked for Occidental Petroleum. I am not a spokesperson for any of those companies. In fact, there's much that I could criticize about the oil and gas industry or big oil, particularly... (laughs) I'll just be honest with you. I'll level with you. I hate that there's a game that's played where some big oil companies actually lobby for increased regulation on the oil and gas industry because they are ready for it before they lobby for it, and it hurts their competitors. I don't like that. I think that's shady. But that said, we'll put that off to the side. I'm not a spokesperson for big oil and gas companies. I am a spokesperson for being able to provide for my family. Before I got into the oil and gas industry back in 2012 in the Williston Basin, I was 25 years old. My wife and I had been married for five years. We had four sons living in Southern Ohio, and we were on every bit of public assistance that we could possibly sign up for, and it still wasn't enough. We couldn't afford to rent our own place, and so I lived in one of my dad's houses that he owned. My parents got divorced when I was in junior high. My mom kept the house. My dad moved out and rented for a while. And then he bought a second home. Neither of them, I'll just be honest with you. Neither of them particularly nice homes, both of them fixer uppers to put it mildly. So we're not talking, oh, he had two houses. he He was a truck driver and he bought two fixer upper homes. And that was the, part-time job actually was fixing up those homes that were fixer uppers from the beginning. And they were never really truly, totally fixed up. I've never lived in a brand new house in my life ever, by the way. The closest I've ever gotten was when I took my oldest son to South Dakota for his 13th birthday. And we stayed in a hotel in Rapid City that had just been completed actually i think they were still working on it but it just opened anyways they were still finishing certain parts of the hotel that's the closest i've ever come to living in a new home and i don't think it counts <laughs> but nevertheless before and after getting a job in oil and gas we were on every form of public assistance and then all of a sudden we weren't and we were able to buy a gently used fairly late model 12-passenger van, and then a house. And then we were able to, here five years ago, trade in our 2008 Hyundai Elantra for an F-150. We were able to be helpful to family that came out to also get jobs in oil and gas in North Dakota and Montana. We were able to pay down debt, and then we... Racked it right back up again, thanks to inflation, thanks to what the Democrats do to the American economy and what they routinely try to do to the oil and gas industry. And when I hear Biden talking about oil companies making so much money in the middle of an energy crisis, first of all, the energy crisis is squarely the fault of Democrats It is absolutely the fault of the Al Gores and the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes. It is absolutely the fault of the elites who live on the coasts, who live in big cities, who think that flyover country America is backwards, ignorant, superstitious, excessively religious, and doesn't know what's best for either them or the world. The energy crisis was the fault of Democrats like Joe Biden and the bureaucratic state making it difficult to impossible for infrastructure programs and projects to proceed. Day one, he shut down major infrastructure projects that were underway that would have reduced the cost of oil and gas. And for the past two plus years, he's been making it difficult for American energy companies To get the permits approved that they need to actually develop oil and gas fields here in the US. And then he says in this speech that he's called these big oil companies out for not investing their record profits back into new production. And they say, well, if we do, you're just going to shut down the refineries. You're telling the American people and the world, left, right, and center, that you're trying to destroy our industry? How are we supposed to invest our profits back into new production when you are making it impossible for us to function long-term? And oh, by the way, one of the things that these big oil companies are doing, and they get accused of greenwashing by the environmentalists, but one of the things that they're trying to do is they're trying to abide by the regulations that the left has imposed on them And they're also trying to get ahead on the renewable energy front because everybody left, right, and center is saying that it's going to be very hard to do business as an oil company in the years to come. Now, Biden says, oh, we're going to need oil and gas for at least another 10 years. And some Republicans laugh and the Democrats in the gallery booed some of them. But that's a bad joke. That's a not funny joke. When you're talking about investment at the scale of tens of billions of dollars and you're saying, oh, we need you for at least another 10 years, that's not a sound investment of capital. It's just not. And oh, by the way, let's not even say anything about when oil prices slump, how much money big oil companies lose. Let's not even say anything about woke ESG investing being part of the reason why oil companies might want to buy back their own shares so that they're not as vulnerable to woke social justice initiatives like BlackRock trying to social engineer the whole world away from inexpensive and abundant fossil fuels. Let's not even say anything about that. Just paint oil and gas companies as the bogeyman. What I hear is you have set big oil up to be the bogeyman so that you can raid big oil's coffers. And then what's his solution? His solution is not to repent of the ways that he's made oil and gas development in the U S very difficult, very challenging. His solution is we're going to make it harder for these big oil companies to buy back their own shares. So they have to invest the profits back into exploration, development, drilling, producing. This is dirty. This is dirty. This is very dirty politics. And he knows exactly what he's doing. And so should we. But let's move on. This next clip I'll play for you. He's talking about non-compete clauses and how many Americans have to sign these non-compete agreements in order to work for companies who don't want them getting some experience quitting and taking a higher paying job with a competitor with the knowledge and experience that that now they've gained in their entry level position. I definitely have some thoughts on something he says here uh, because it's just, it's, uh, it's too good. It's too good. And by too good, I mean, take a listen
1: for too long. Workers have been getting stiffed, but not anymore. We're, getting, we're beginning to restore the dignity of work. For example, I, w- I, I should have known this, but I didn't until two years ago. 30 million workers have to sign non-compete agreements for the jobs they take. 30 million. So a cashier at a burger place can't walk across town and take the same job at another burger place and make a few bucks more. It just changed. But they just changed it because we exposed it. That was part of the deal, guys. Look it up. But not anymore. We're banning those agreements so companies have to compete for workers and pay them what they're
0: worth. (laughs) Uh, Let me get this straight. Let's just double check. And did, did I hear that right? the president of the united states of america thinks that a cashier at burger king is being required to sign a non-compete agreement to go work for burger king that would prevent them from quitting their job at burger king and going across town and getting a job at mcdonald's for more money it like does he does he actually is is he serious? Does he actually think that that's a thing? Does, does he? I mean, like he said, he's been in Washington, D.C. longer than just about anybody, if not anybody. So he's never had to work a job in this economy that he is controlling. But somebody apparently told him this and he believes it. I mean, where where is that happening? Who? I mean, could it be a thing? Maybe, but. You, why? Why? Why would you need that? But why? Would, <laughs> That's not where non-compete agreements come into play. It's just not. Non-compete agreements are for when you're going to be working in a capacity that gives you access to very particular trade secrets that would be valuable to your competitors or the competitors of the business that you're working for. And you can take those trade secrets to a competitor. And that presents an unfair advantage rendered to your competitor to where they can basically steal your intellectual capital or steal a company's intellectual capital, intellectual property by hiring away talent. That That's where non-compete agreements come into play. So for instance, for example, let's say I work for a company that is inventing uh, new software and it's very special software and how it works under the hood, like the particular secrets of why that software is going to be so effective and attractive to people that would buy it, that would pay for it. I am going to learn before I hire on the company wants me to sign a non-compete agreement so that I don't go across town to a rival software company and take the secrets of how the software works under the hood. And also not just the secrets of the software, but also maybe let's say client lists. Let's also say potentially, you know, intimate reports of the internal workings of the company that would then tip off the rival company as to where they need to invest or target where the vulnerabilities are, that's what non-compete agreements are actually about. That's where they come into play. Not when you're running the cash register at Burger King and McDonald's is hiring for $2 more an hour. That's That's disingenuous. If Joe Biden actually believes that, then it just goes to show how out of touch he is. If he doesn't believe it, then it goes to show how dishonest he is. If his advisors have told him that based on a single example, like I, I can't even imagine where a non-compete agreement would come into play for a cashier because the cash register you're running is not going to be some special secret sauce that your competitors want to hire you away because you you know it. And oh, you know, come over here. We don't have cash registers, but you've you've used a cash register before, right? Yeah, we we want to. Eliminate that competitive advantage that Burger King has over McDonald's. And all the while, Burger King, their, their CEO, their corporate board is like, oh, no. What? McDonald's is going to learn about cash registers. Ah, don't allow that. Here comes Joe Biden and the Democrats to save the day. <laughs> you got to be kidding. That's that's just silly. That's just plain silly. <laughs> But this actually does lead into our next clip. We're going to play a clip here regarding how Joe Biden sees education, particularly public education in the United States of America, the way he frames it and the way he sees uh, our problem, or at least the way he wants us to see the problem with American public schools. Take a listen.
1: You know, when we made public education, 12 years of it, universal in the last century, We made the best educated, best paid, we became the best educated, best paid nation in the world. But the rest of the world's caught up. It's caught up. Jill, my wife, who teaches full time, has an expression. I hope I get it right, kid. Any nation that out educates us is gonna out compete us. Any nation that out educates is gonna out compete us. Folks, we all know 12 years of education is not enough to win the economic competition of 21st century. We want to have the best educated workforce let's finish the job by providing access to preschool for three and four years old studies show that children who go to preschool are nearly 50 percent more likely to finish high school and go on to earn a two or four year degree no matter their background they came from let's give public school teachers a raise
0: okay so a couple things one check out john taylor Gatto's lectures and his books concerning american public education two what would neil postman have to say about this three have i mentioned lately that i wrote a book and this is why we homeschool and this is why we homeschool so this is a very wrong-headed at best sincerely mistaken badly mistaken however sincerely way of framing our education system here in the U.S. relative the education system of other countries around the world. It's a very, very badly mistaken way of framing the situation at best. At worst, this is highly manipulative and extraordinarily dishonest. So let's take this a piece at a time. Let's take this apart piece by piece, actually, is what I mean. Compulsory schooling was not ever from the beginning intended to actually educate all Americans. Gatto would say education is not the right word for what the American public schools are delivering. And the reason for that is they weren't intended to actually provide an education. They are obedience factories. They are a social engineering project. Our universities are not a destination. They are a training ground. This is an industrialized approach to removing the spiritual, emotional, and intellectual capacity of Americans to disagree with the progressive agenda. So let's talk about wanting kids even younger to get started with pre-K. Do a little bit of research on where the whole idea of kindergarten comes from originally. It's literally a garden of children, and the public schools are supposed to be pulling the weeds and pruning the bushes and approaching your children like the state is going to need so many more tomatoes, and the state is going to need this many cucumbers. And the state doesn't like this plant, and so we're going to just... Uproot it and toss it. Pre K is all the more insidious if kindergarten is not the place for young children and if the public schools are not actually delivering a quality education. If the public schools are not delivering a quality education in K through 12, and our kids don't know how to read, they don't know history, they don't know science, they have no morals, they have no fear of God, they have no hope increasingly but they have no restraint on their impulses. In fact, they're being encouraged to indulge those impulses as part of the brainwashing scheme, as part of the obedience training. Creativity, curiosity, independence, self-determination are ruthlessly weeded out because they are a threat to the social order that the progressives envision. And so advocating for pre-K because... Kids who go through pre K are 50% more likely to finish high school and go on to get a two or four year degree. That's only a good thing if a two or four year degree is going to be such a valuable thing to these kids. It's only a good thing if finishing public high school is in itself a good thing. If K through 12 is not delivering value for kids from five or six years old on up to 17, 18 years old. If it's not delivering value, this is the Democrat playbook. When their systems and their protocols and their policies fail, they just want more of the same. Let's start earlier and let's go later. And that'll change the quality of the in-between? No. Success is not get these kids to graduate high school or a two-year or a four-year degree program. Success ought to be, are they healthy, functional adults who can make decisions in life, at least if this is supposed to be a free country, comprised of free men, women, and children. Now, if it's not supposed to be a free country like the Founding Fathers or like Protestant Christians historically would argue, if it's not supposed to be a free country where we are free to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience, we're free to serve God with All that we are in fulfillment of the Great Commission as Christians, in fulfillment of the dominion mandate to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, whether or not we're Christians, if that's not the kind of freedom that the Democrats want, and we know that it isn't on point after point, after point, after point, then I think we get right back to 1984, freedom of slavery. The ministry of truth is actually all about lying and getting you to submit, getting you to obey. That's the point. The point is obedience. The point is not knowledge and understanding and wisdom and insight and freedom, according to God. The idea is freedom from God and corresponding slavery to sin and to the state. Now, never mind all that, because other countries' test scores are outpacing ours, and we're going to say that they've caught up. It's not that America is spiraling down. It's that everybody else has caught up and passed us up because we're not requiring pre-K and we're not paying teachers enough. And that's a bribe to the teachers unions. They get more money for doing a poorer and poorer job that an increasing number of Americans are not impressed with, nor should we be. And this is why we homeschool. And this is why if you're not going to homeschool, if you can't homeschool, you should at a minimum be pushing for school choice where you're Money follows your child to a parochial school. How's that for an idea? If you can't, then we need to have more investment capacity on an individual basis by being able to keep our own money. If it's our tax money that's going to the public schools, then shouldn't our tax money follow our children when we don't have confidence in the public schools? Nor should we. Shouldn't our money follow our children? And the Democrats who are in league with the NEA, say, no, no, that's not fair. That's not fair. Again, what's your idea of fairness predicated on? From whence comes this magic word fair that you get to use as an abracadabra to abolish sound arguments and a consideration of costs and benefits, a comparative examination of the product of a century of compulsory schooling. And oh, by the way, as I said in our last episode, I just recently learned that the NEA was a major contributor to the creation of a federal department of education. There was not a federal department of education in the United States of America before the NEA and the Ku Klux Klan pushed for it together because both alike were threatened by parochial schools. They didn't like the idea that Americans would be free to educate their children as they deemed best. And that's where the teachers union that is most influential in pushing for the election of Democrats, who then return the favor by voting the public school teachers and public school districts ever more money for doing a poorer and poorer job, at least as we would see it, maybe not as they see it, if the big idea is progress And we're all just regarded as cattle anyways. The or else in their mind is not good Christian men and women in society being free to be conservatives or independents. The greater good as they see it is even if we are slaves to them, that would be better because slavery is freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from want. Freedom from God. But let's move on. The next clip we're going to play has to do with Tyre Nichols' parents who were in the gallery during the State of the Union address last night. And we won't spend a lot of time on this, but in conjunction with a couple of additional clips, I think that we should pay close attention to what is being said and what the ramifications are and whether that is true and whether that is good.
1: Take a listen. Join us tonight or the parents of Tyree Nichols. Welcome. We had to bury Tyree last week. As many of you personally know, there's no word to describe the heartache or grief of losing a child, but imagine, Imagine if you lost that child at the hands of the law. Imagine having to worry whether your son or daughter came home from walking down the street, or playing in the park, or just driving a car. Most of us in here have never had to have the talk, the talk that brown and black parents have had to have with their children. Bo, Hunter, Ashley, my children, I never had to have the talk with them. I never had to tell them if a police officer pulls you over, turn your interior lights on right away don't reach for your license keep your hands on the steering wheel imagine having to worry like that every single time your kid got in a car here's what tyree's mother shared with me when i spoke to her when i asked her how she finds the courage to carry on and speak out the faith of god she said her son was quote a beautiful soul and something good will come of this imagine how much courage and carry that takes it's up to us to all of us we all want the same thing neighborhoods free of violence, law enforcement of enforcement who earns the community's trust. Just as every cop when they pin on that badge in the morning has a right to be able to go home at night. So does everybody else out there. Our children have a right to come home safely.
0: Okay, so this is the part of the show where I say that several things can be true all at the same time. Among those True things is that sometimes people who are in positions of governmental authority abuse their authority. Another true thing is that sometimes people's children misbehave out in society and they are actually the ones who are abusing their freedom. They're abusing their freedom, they are not respecting legitimate authority, and if they're particularly wicked, they may even attempt to harm or kill people who are in legitimate positions of authority rather than be told, no, stop that. You can't. Come over here. Keep your hands where I can see them. Both of these statements are true at the same time. And sometimes when we hear a story about somebody dying at the hands of law enforcement, it is due to the former truth that people in positions of governing authority might abuse their authority. Sometimes when we hear about a person dying at the hands of law enforcement in this country, it is due to the second statement because they were misbehaving. They were being evil, they were being wicked. They were doing what was evil. And when law enforcement told them to stop it, they got aggressive, they got violent, they were non-compliant, they were disobeying lawful orders, and they posed a risk to life and limb for the law enforcement officer or for a member of the general public. And they were killed. The left sees a political advantage in blurring the lines to the point of not being able to distinguish between those two kinds of scenarios. They get a political advantage as they see it off of only recognizing the one kind of scenario, only talking about the one kind of scenario, only wanting you to think about the one kind of scenario so that they can push the reforms that they want to push so that they can keep on getting voted into power so that they can actually be the ultimate governing authority. And the problem with that idea, that way of going is multiple. One problem is if it's true that governing authorities can abuse their authority, then wouldn't the danger to us all go up and up and up and up? The more authority we invest in a person who might potentially be abusive with that authority, doesn't the danger go up and up and up? How do we know that you're not going to abuse the authority that we are vesting in you? This is not coincidentally why the United States government was conceived of with so many checks and balances from the beginning. Three branches of government that are co-equal, multiple levels of government, city, county, state, federal, even within the U.S. legislative branch. A bicameral legislature, not a unicameral, because, again, checks and balances. Also, periodic elections, so that the elected governing officials are accountable to the constituents if they are not doing a good job, they can be voted out and replaced. Also, mechanisms in place where journalistic organizations can report on what is being done by those who hold governing authority so that the people can hold them accountable, so that the people can remove them if they are themselves breaking the law and being evil and corrupt. But all of that is built on the foundation of Protestant Christian political philosophy. Insofar as the left wants to liberate us all from Christianity here in America, we also need to recognize They are willing to do and say very, very evil, corrupt, dishonest things to get us to go along with it, or at least to get us to not try and stop them. And they only recognize what I would call the second scenario, the second possibility for why sometimes individuals lose their lives at the hands of law enforcement. They only want us to think that those scenarios apply when it's politically convenient to them and they want us to think that every scenario falls into the former category unless it's inconvenient to them. And what I mean by that is we're supposed to believe that people who are in positions of governmental authority should be assumed guilty until proven innocent instead of due process where they should be presumed innocent until proven guilty, except when they're at the very highest levels like President Biden himself. Except When the accountability measures and mechanisms would lead to he himself and his family being susceptible to criminal charges or criminal investigation. When it's that as a consequence, well, no, 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 no. You're a conspiracy theory, but it's not conspiracy theory. If they paint every cop as potentially a racist oppressor, how about that? Also, might I just point out that the idea that everyone's child has the right to come home safe at night, that's not true. If your child is a rioter or a looter or a murderer or a rapist, they do not have the right to come home safe at night. They forego and relinquish that right. They abdicate that right by their corrupt conduct. But again, several things can be true all at the same time that sometimes those in positions of authority abuse their authority. Also, sometimes those who should be under authority take advantage of the fact that there's an opening and they might run for it or they might fight and kill somebody who is in a position of legitimate authority because just like they were breaking the law when the cop showed up, they are definitely also willing to break the law to try and save their own skin, stay out of jail, stay out of prison, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm going to move on to the next clip here. We'll come back to this whole question of our children having a right to come home safe at night, law enforcement having a right to come home safe at night. We'll come back to it here in a couple of minutes. We've got a couple of clips to get through before we do. But this next clip has to do with part of the prescription Joe Biden and the Democrats are offering for solving the underlying problem as they see it that is leading to so many of our children not coming home safe at night. Take a listen.
1: Give law enforcement the real training they need. Hold them to higher standards. Help them succeed in keeping us safe. We also need more first responders and professionals to address the growing mental health substance abuse challenges. More resources to reduce violent crime and gun crime more community intervention programs, more investment in housing, education, and job training. All this can help prevent violence in the first place. When police officers or police departments violate the public trust, they must be held accountable.
0: Okay. So if hypothetically we could say that Drugs are the problem, okay? If we could say that drugs are the problem, then it would follow that the solution is to get the drugs out of here, get people off of drugs, get drugs off the street, keep drugs from coming into the country, punish people who are manufacturing these drugs, distributing these drugs, selling these drugs, buying these drugs, using these drugs if the problem were at its root the drugs then that would be the solution also too if the problem were mental health then the solution would be and i agree if if the problem is mental health then the solution would be we need more resources that are going to improve mental health all right Now, might I suggest to you that there is something upstream of the drug problem and something upstream of the mental health problem, and that that upstream issue is common to both the downstream symptoms, namely drug abuse and mental illness. Going back to the Ad Fontes journal piece by Miles Smith. Quote, the men to make a state must be religious men, End quote. Insofar as we have refused to allow for a religious public square, and yet we do hear token acknowledgments of God, God bless America, or God bless you all, God protect our troops. But the policies, the institutions, the initiatives are themselves godless, and anytime you point that out, you are roundly mocked, ridiculed, and condemned for supposedly wanting a theocracy. Suppose with me, if you will, for a moment, that we will never actually deal with the problem of mental health or drug abuse, so long as we fail to deal with the root. So long as we're hostile to anybody who would address the root. Now, I know That in the case of mental health, it can be complicated. There can be environmental factors. There can be genetic factors that are more than just read your Bible more, repent, pray, go to church, be a better Christian. I understand that. But most of our mental health issues in this country, I'm convinced, are nothing more than our sinful hearts and our minds that are hostile to God, reaping the effects, reaping the penalties. We are reaping what has been sown with the progressive approach to public life, which never stays secular in the public alone. It also requires secularity in our private lives, even the private life of the mind. The mental health initiatives that the Biden administration is going to roll out are actually going to increase mental illness. They will not decrease it. They think mental health can be advanced by encouraging people who are homosexuals to be proud of the fact, people who are taken in by the transgender fad and ideology of our day to embrace the notion that they were born in the wrong body, that they're actually a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. That's their idea of mental health, and it is mental illness. What if the people who are promoting mental health are actually themselves very ill and have no idea what true health is about? Also, what if they are godless and therefore will insist stubbornly on continuing to celebrate and affirm and promote and praise The very things that are making us sick in the first place. They are stubbornly committed to the things that are making us mentally ill, in other words. And so there's no way that they can possibly improve the mental health of Americans. How would it be if you decided to move to Chernobyl and then someone came along and they said, oh, it's very good for you to live here. It's a very interesting place to live. It's got a rich history. But I noticed that you have cancer. Let me help you with some cancer treatments, but oh, no, no, no. You don't need to move away from Chernobyl. That can only have one outcome. The cancer treatments, if you continue living in Chernobyl, will not do nearly so much good as the living in Chernobyl will do harm. You are fighting a losing battle, but you're not really actually even fighting. You're pretending to fight, but where you are at is actually what is making you sick in that case. And if the people who have been told as much abuse and punish anyone who says, hey, maybe have you considered not living in Chernobyl as a cancer treatment? If they get abused by the people who are saying that they really care for you, you need to be wise about whether you are listening to one party or the other, one influence or the other. The drug problem is a choice. Actually, it's a whole lot of individual choices. And actually, I would say that the choices being made to indulge in the drug problem are largely driven by the spiritual condition of this country being very poor because Christianity is increasingly driven from the public square. There's an increasing hostility towards Christian uh, Christian truth, Christian goodness, Christian boldness, Christian purity, chastity, repentance, calls to repentance in the public square. So then we just have people self-medicating and they're doing exactly what they were taught to do. And you're just confusing them and getting nowhere when you tell them that they're an animal and they've been managed from pre-K up through their four-year degree, like they are an animal and that pleasure is the most important thing in life. Their pleasure is the most important thing in life. You're just confusing them And getting nowhere, if then you tell them that actually pleasure in the short term is not the highest good and something can feel really, really good in the short term and also ultimately kill you and rob you of life. Therefore, you are just confusing them if you have told them pleasure is the highest good and that they should seek after it and abuse, if not destroy, anybody who tells them otherwise. And then you tell them when drugs, happen to make them feel the most pleasure, that that's somehow a bad idea. Don't do that. But why? But why? If you mean it, well, then your commitments to godlessness are actually the primary impediment to you getting anywhere on this issue. You don't correctly understand the problem at its root, and you are interfering with people who do. So the problem is going to get worse there, too. And you kind of have to pick one. You can't say at the same time that our children have a right to come home safe at night and police officers need to get drugs off the streets, but also at the same time when the police officers encounter children who were raised in a godless way by the public schools and are now high on drugs have a right to make it home safe at night when the cops, who were also predominantly raised in those same public schools, tell them stop. I'd like to talk with you. I'd like to ask you some questions. It's satanic. This is satanic. This is the work of Satan, uh, plain and simple. And you can laugh, but you'll see. You'll see. Moving on. Our next clip here, here at the one hour, four minute and 50 second mark on this right side broadcasting video on YouTube. Here is Biden on gun control.
1: That includes things like that the majority of responsible gun owners already support, enhanced background checks for 18 to 21-year-olds, red flag laws keeping guns out of the hands of people who are a danger to themselves and others. But we know our work is not done. Join us tonight is Brandon Say, a 26-year-old hero. Brandon put his college dreams on hold to be at his mom's side. His mom's side when she was dying from cancer. And Brandon Brandon now works at the dance studio, started by his grandparents. Two weeks ago, during the Lunar New Year celebrations, he heard the studio door close, and he saw a man standing there pointing a semi-automatic pistol at him. He thought he was going to die, but he thought about the people inside. In that instant, he found the courage to act and wrestled a semi-automatic pistol away from the gunman who had already killed 11 people in another dance studio. 11. He saved lives. It's time we do the same. Ban assault weapons now. <laughs> Ban them now. Once and for all. I led the fight to do that in 1994. In, in ten years, that ban was law. Mass shootings went down.
0: Okay, let's <laughs> let's review, and I'll go slowly so that we can understand what just happened there. A little bit of a shell game, rhetorically. So he started out talking about the story of this gentleman up in the gallery, and how he was there for his mom when she was diagnosed with cancer and dying of cancer. And that creates a sense of emotional investment in this character. And now he's going to tell you about this gentleman stopping a gunman who had come into the dance studio to murder with a, as Biden says, semi-automatic handgun. I think that's what he said, a semi-automatic handgun. He saved lives. He did a courageous thing. He thought he was going to die, but he did a courageous thing. And he stopped the gunman from killing any more people, including himself. And then Joe Biden changes the script abruptly, angrily, and confusingly. Because next he says, ban assault weapons now. So he starts out talking about gun control, red flag laws. We need red flag laws. Keep guns out of the hands of folks who are a danger to themselves and others. And who all is that? Well, it's open to interpretation. All responsible gun owners support these things. Most responsible gun owners res- support these things. Yeah, but who are the responsible gun owners in your view? Who who all <laughs> qualifies, by the way? Also, who do you consider to be a danger to themselves and others. Also, what does that even mean, right? What does that even mean? The rubric is not the Second Amendment. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's not the rubric. The rubric is safety. Whatever makes the people around you feel unsafe, potentially. If they feel unsafe with you having a firearm, well, then that's that's a danger. That's that's when we know. That, that's how we know that we need to keep guns out of your hands and away from you, because these people do not feel safe with you having a firearm. But we were talking about semi-automatic handguns Uh, just a moment ago. I thought you were saying that the guy who came into the dance studio to murder was using a semi-automatic handgun. And now you're saying you want to ban assault weapons. So what do you define as an assault weapon? Semi-automatic handguns are assault weapons? Anything you might use to assault some other person is an assault weapon. What exactly is an assault weapon? Who is a responsible gun owner? Who is a danger to themselves and others? And these are all vague enough to mean whatever you want them to mean, whenever you want them to change their meaning in a convenient way politically. So there's no real clarity here, except when we know that time and again, Democrats push for, gun control, and that the most, I would say, honest and radical Democrats don't believe that private citizens should be able to own firearms at all. Private security for Democrat politicians should be able to carry firearms. Law enforcement should be able to carry firearms, even though law enforcement sometimes behaves badly and does the wrong thing. Also, our military presumably should be able to carry firearms so that they can go and fight wars. And when we say, God, protect our men and women in the armed forces, what, what does that mean? Does that mean you're going to say, well, we don't need weapons anymore? Well, no. No, of course not. If we get into a hot war with Russia and China, our armed forces are going to be armed. That's why they're armed forces, because they have weapons to be able to defend themselves, to be able to defend us. If it gets really out of hand, then presumably we would also want to be able to defend ourselves and we, the American people, would be the armed forces as well. But let's put that off to the side for a moment. You were talking about semi-automatic handguns. Now you're saying you want to bring back the assault weapons ban. That, I would conclude, means that you regard semi-automatic handguns as being, quote-unquote, assault weapons. But on what basis? on the basis that they can be used to assault somebody. I I think you can use just about anything. You could use a rack that you picked up on the side of the road as an assault weapon. But again, what's at the upstream point is a sin problem. And if we don't accept that, if we won't hear that, if we won't admit that, if we won't even allow anybody to deal with that or address that or confront that, and increasingly there's a hostility to anybody who tries, we won't understand that all parties concerned can have that sinful nature, which when provoked or when presented with an opportunity will assault other people in a wicked, evil, even murderous way. And again, which is it? That law enforcement is untrustworthy and can even savagely beat. And by the way, by the way, Law enforcement didn't shoot Tyre Nichols. They beat him to death. They kicked him to death. They didn't shoot him. But do you mean to tell me that we should call the cops when there's a problem, but then the cops can't be trusted, but then neither can we be trusted to have firearms to defend ourselves because we might use those firearms in a way that's dangerous? Well, forgive me for being a little bit dense here. I do come from flyover country America. I think that's the point, that they are dangerous. I think that's the reason why we want to own firearms in case somebody breaks in in the middle of the night. I think that when I see the video of Paul Pelosi, a hammer in hand, wrestling with somebody who broke in looking for Nancy, and when he's smaller than the guy who then, with the cops there, with the cops standing at the door, takes the hammer out of... Paul Pelosi's hand and proceeds to hit him in the head with it, if the cops hadn't been there, if they hadn't intervened, would he have beaten Paul Pelosi to death with the hammer? Also too, which would be better, Paul Pelosi confronting a larger intruder in his home with a hammer or Paul Pelosi being able to confront an intruder with a semi-automatic handgun. At that point, it's not an assault weapon. It's a defense weapon. It's a I'm defending my home and my person and my family and other innocent people weapon. So this is just crazy and unconstitutional and immoral because even as the public schools and our media and our entertainment industry and politicians are contributing to lawlessness and an erosion of Christian character in this country, gleefully. And then that is being called mental illness and a drug problem. And even as the supposed mental illness, supposed drug problem, can even negatively impact law enforcement, but really if it's a sin problem, then the drugs are not first and foremost the issue. The mental health is not first and foremost the issue. The sin is the issue. Our godlessness, our lawlessness is the issue. You're saying, we can't trust the cops, but also we can't be trusted with firearms. So then what? So then what? Moving on. I'm going to play the next clip. This one having to do with Roe v. Wade.
1: Those on temporary status, farm workers, essential workers, here in the People's House, it's our duty to protect all the people's rights and freedoms. Congress must restore the right and the... Congress must restore the right that was taken away in Roe v. Wade and protect Roe v. Wade. Give every woman a constant right. The Vice President and I are doing everything to protect access to reproductive health care and safeguard patient safety. While already, more than a dozen states are enforcing extreme abortion bans. Make no mistake about it. If Congress passes a national ban, I will veto it. But let's also pass. Let's also pass the bipartisan equality act to ensure LGBTQ Americans, especially transgender young people, can live with safety and dignity. Our strength. Our strength is not just the example of our power. But the power of our example.
0: Okay. <clears throat> all right. So there's a little bit of a kerfuffle, and this happens several times throughout the speech, where there's a call for order. I don't know what that was about. I don't know what was said, what was done. But there was an objection raised, or a complaint, or a boo, or somebody yelling back at him. And he says, we have to protect the rights of all of the people. So he talks about, a pathway to citizenship for people who have come into the country illegally from other countries. And then he pivots to talking about codifying Roe v. Wade, and he characterizes Republican states which have banned abortion as being extreme. And I ask, if your job is to protect all of the people, the rights of all of the people, how dare you carve out an exception for the unborn? And how dare you call extreme Republicans in states that have more Christians, arguably, or a higher, a higher percentage of Christians, arguably, how dare you call them extreme and vilify them for protecting the rights of the unborn? For that matter, how dare you call it reproductive health to murder an unborn child? in his or her mother's womb. That's not health care. That is death care. That's actually not even care. It's just death. It's murder. That's not health care. That's murder. But the ominous undertone is that if we can call murder health care, then you can legitimate literally anything. And this is why I say again, you are not the person to... Address mental health problems in this country because this is a mentally ill and insane. This is morally insane to reason the way that you're reasoning. It is morally insane and it leads to general insanity to say that you are going to call healthcare murdering unborn children and that you're going to call extreme efforts to protect the unborn from being murdered. It's morally insane to say you're going to protect especially the rights of so-called transgender children. These are children who've been abused and molested and brainwashed and manipulated into believing that they will have a better life and more happiness if they take these drugs and undergo this surgery to mutilate their little bodies. You are talking about making little boys into eunuchs. You're talking about removing girls' ability to ever have a child, to ever get pregnant, to ever give birth, to ever nurse their own infant. You're talking about cutting out internal organs and also removing external organs, reproductive organs. That's not healthcare. That's butchery. The whole transgender ideology as applied to children, you wanting to codify Roe v. Wade, both alike, are you talking about butchering children? And what was it you were saying earlier about our children have a right to come home safe at night? Not the unborn, in your view. Not little boys and little girls who you want to be persuaded in the public schools to be sterilized, essentially to be spayed and neutered, essentially, you don't actually mean it. You're a liar. And this is satanic. You don't mean it that you believe our children have a right to come home safe at night. Or if you do mean it, you actually are arguing in detail with resolve to violate the very right you are saying our children have to come home safe at night. You are not the solution. And you are not bringing solutions; you are the problem. But let's continue on, and let's talk about the next instance of double speak and double think with regards to China. Take a listen.
1: Investing in our alliances and working with our allies to protect advanced technologies so they will not be used against us. Modernizing our military to safeguard stability and determine deter aggression today. We're in the strongest position in decades to compete with China or anyone else in the world. Anyone else in the world. And I'm committed. I'm committed to work with China where we can advance American interests and benefit the world, but make no mistake about it. As we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country, and we did. Look, let's be clear. Winning the competition should unite all of us. We face serious challenges across the world. But in the past two years, democracies have become stronger, not weaker. Autocracy has grown weaker, not stronger. Name me a world leader who changed places with Xi Jinping. Name me one. Name me one. America's rallying the world to meet those challenges from climate to global health to food insecurity, to terrorism, to territorial aggression. Allies are stepping up, spending more and doing more. Look.
0: All right, I will look. You asked me to look. You told me to look. I will look. I'll tell you at least one country's leader who might not mind trading places with Xi Jinping. Militarily and economically, Russia would probably not mind Putin would probably not mind trading places with Xi Jinping in China. And that is actually half the point in criticizing the decisions of this administration, not just over the past couple of years, but for decades. This party, the Democratic Party, not just over the past two years, but for decades. With regards to China, China is the bigger threat. China is the bigger problem. And it's come out with regards to the Chinese spy balloon that was flying over Billings, Montana, where I have been many times, that China has been flying these spy balloons all over the world, and they've been flying these spy balloons over the United States of America for years. In fact, they did this when Donald Trump was president, and nobody told him about it, allegedly. General Mattis, for instance, is supposed to have recently said that Trump was provocative and they didn't want him to know because he might do what Biden just did and shoot the balloon down. This has been happening for years. The Democrats here in the U.S., especially, not just, but especially, have made China economically and militarily as powerful as they are. Big tech. Here in the U S has helped to contribute to China becoming as wealthy and as powerful as they are right now, but also major American institutions, major American corporations and sports leagues and cultural figures and politicians have been compromising with China, compromising American interests to China for quite some time in exchange for access to Chinese markets or in exchange for access to Chinese money. And we won't get off into the Hunter Biden laptop business and what that might portend for Joe Biden being compromised. But if it turned out that the Bidens have taken money from the Chinese in exchange for favorable decisions or access to classified documents, and intel. Joe Biden is the threat, not first and foremost, China, because we can't trust Joe Biden to be objective about China. If he has taken money from China and also was still going to send Blinken, Secretary of State, to China to meet with Chinese Communist Party officials until it came out, until the public found out that There was a Chinese spy balloon flying over America, which he allowed to fly all the way over America and then shot it down. Blinken was going to go to China and they wanted to keep this all very quiet so as to not have to cancel the trip. But if it's been happening for years, if it's been happening all over the US, if it's been happening all over the world, either A, we knew about it and leaders like Biden, the Democrats here in the US, didn't say anything about it because they were being paid to not say anything about it. They didn't do anything about it because they were being paid not to do anything about it. Or they don't take it seriously. That's another option. That's another possibility. They don't take it seriously because they've underestimated, even while everybody is sounding the alarm bells about how costly and dangerous a war with China would be, they didn't take it seriously. They underestimated the threat, like Obama quipping that the 1980s, Called and they want their foreign policy back when Romney was bringing up the threat that China and Russia portend for America and the West. And if they underestimated it and if they didn't take it seriously enough, even while they continued to do very lucrative business with China, even while they continued to keep folks like Congressman Eric Swalwell from California on the House Intel Committee after. The FBI revealed that he had had a close, intimate relationship with a Chinese spy named Fang Fang. Oh, but Petraeus, he got the boot. He got the boot because of his illicit affair with his biographer. Either they're corrupt or they underestimated. They knew and didn't tell us, and they only did something to supposedly protect American sovereignty, when the whole public found out and everybody was upset about it. Or option three, they didn't know. They had no idea. But if they didn't know and they had no idea, it might be because they were too distracted making money in China. They were too distracted praising the Chinese Communist Party and trying to imitate it. And for all we know, the theories that percolate here, there, and behind the scenes about China having been the place where America's education system was tried out first, experimentally, before it was implemented nationwide here in the U.S. For all we know, that's half the reason why Democrats are so soft on China, and so friendly with China, and have to pretend to be tough on China, because China actually is their backup plan. Either way, they want these ideas to win out. And if they're not able to implement them here, well, then maybe China is plan B. If not for Democrats here in the US, certainly for Marxists around the world, leftists here in the US, they love them some Marxism. They love them some communism and they'll take it where they can get it. Moving on. Let's talk again about something Biden had to say in the State of the Union address last night concerning mental health, access to mental health resources.
1: Second, let's do more mental health, especially for our children. When millions of young people are struggling with bullying, violence, trauma, we owe them greater access to mental health care at their schools. We must finally hold social media companies accountable for experimenting or doing running children for profit. It's time to pass bipartisan legislation to stop big tech from collecting personal data on our kids and teenagers online, ban targeted advertising to children, and impose stricter limits on the personal data that companies collect on all of us.
0: Again, again, no, 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 no. You are not the party. You are not the person to be addressing the mental health problems in the United States. Because the things you guys are promoting, the things you guys are insisting on are creating mental health problems, the mental health problems. You are banishing Christian religion from the public square. You are promoting American public education, which erodes the formation of character for children when it doesn't entirely prevent the same. You are encouraging little boys and girls to undergo surgery, to mutilate their bodies, to take medication to prevent themselves from going through puberty. You're promoting homosexuality. You're making it very difficult for families to buy adequate housing, groceries, to pay for utilities, to pay for transportation. At every level, you are interfering with the stability of the American family. And by extension, you are creating exactly the conditions in which mental illness becomes rampant, where depression and despair and bullying and suicide and mass shootings are most likely to happen and to happen with greater frequency and greater severity. And you refuse to listen to conservative American Christians who know what to do about these things. In fact, speaking of social media, it's amazing to me that there would be this tough talk about going after big tech, going after social media companies for harvesting metadata on American citizens, including children and teens and young adults. The Democrat party has disproportionately encouraged that and benefited from that from a political standpoint the Democrat party has disproportionately fostered that and also further eroded the ability of conservative Americans to address these problems online and IRL in real life by pressuring big tech to silence conservative Americans. You are there also contributing to the decline of mental health in this country, the angry leftists who come out of the weeds to mock and abuse conservative Christians online. The big tech moderators and independent fact checkers who with a click of a button can keep content like mine from being seen, shared and even postable in the first place. Their fault is not first and foremost that they are harvesting data, which then they use for targeted advertising or research purposes, their fault first and foremost is they do all of this according to the leftist playbook and the progressive vision of the good life, which is godless, which is amoral at best, but ultimately immoral in the end. You're not going to solve the mental health problem for these young kids when on the one hand you continue promoting American public education and, and so-called healthcare for transgendered youth, but on the other hand, you're going to pretend at being so concerned that kids are being bullied. There's no worse bully in American society than the leftist social justice warrior and woke activist who prefers Antifa and BLM over going to church, reading their Bible, and engaging in free and open discourse online or in real life. There is no worse bully. To quote C.S. Lewis, they do so with the approval of their own conscience. Now the left will say, oh, but American Christians, conservative Christians in America can be just as bad or worse. And I say again, our view of all of the above is so tainted by the American public education experience, which is not education, it's schooling Our view of these debates online is so skewed by the fact that big tech gets to control who you do and don't see and who you do and don't hear. And you think, oh, well, we have some conservative people who are very popular online. Yeah, but how do you know that those were the best and the brightest? And also when the debate just suddenly gets quiet on the right among conservatives, what all is not being said because conservatives are self-censoring to maintain relevance and to not get deplatformed because the left is ready and willing to deplatform them. What all is not being said among conservatives and if said, what all is not being seen or heard because the left can silence us. I'm not half so worried about what the left and what big tech knows about me online as I am concerned about How easy it is to make sure that nobody outside of big tech knows me online. That's more concerning to me because it's not just me. It also means that when I appreciate some other conservative commentator, their content can so easily be taken down and has been shadow banned, flagged. That's the big scandal with regards to big tech online, not the collection of metadata and not targeted advertising, but censorship of conservatives. Where is your commentary on that? What do you have to say about that? It would be very hard for you to be against it because you've benefited so much behind the scenes from it. Moving on. And we've got just two more clips. We're almost through all of them. Just two more clips from last night's State of the Union address delivered by Joe Biden to a joint session of Congress. This next one is Biden talking about democracy. You'll remember just a little bit ago, I played a clip where he is talking about no leader in the world wanting to trade places with Xi Jinping. Democracies around the world have gotten stronger in recent years. Autocracies have gotten weaker. Here's what Biden has to say about democracy in America.
1: Folks, there's one reason why we've been able to do all of these things, our democracy itself. It's the most fundamental thing of all. With democracy, everything's possible. Without it, nothing is. For the last few years, our democracy has been threatened and attacked, put at risk, put to the test in this very room on January the 6th. And then, just a few months ago, an unhinged big lie assailant and unleashed of political violence the home of the then Speaker of the House of Representatives, using the very same language the insurrectionists used as they stalked these halls and chanted on January 6th. Here tonight in this chamber is a man who bears the scars of that brutal attack, but is as tough and as strong and as resilient as they get. My friend Paul Pelosi.
0: Okay, <clears throat> a couple of things. One, I remember. I I remember before moving to. Montana in 2012, back home to Montana in 2012, from Southern Ohio. I remember what the state motto of Ohio is. With God, all things are possible. Now, recognize that that saying for the left, for Democrats in the U.S., is modified. In place of God, they would have democracy. That is, that their God is democracy, and yet it's disingenuous because democracy is only so good as the people they themselves are seeking to represent and claiming to represent. The demos is where we get democracy as a concept. The demos are the people, we the people. The people rule, but which people? 51% Which people? These people over here think these things, and so they're right. And how do we know they're right? Because 51% of them voted for such and such. These people over here are standing in the way of progress, as we're told. And so they are not democracy. They are not the people. They're just people, but they're not the people. We'll call them other things. We'll call them insurrectionists, for instance. We'll call them extremists, for instance. We'll call them MAGA Republicans, for instance. We'll call them bitter clingers, for instance. We'll call them a basket of deplorables, for instance. They're not the people. They are just people. Not the people, just people. So in a democracy, any reference to the people should lead you automatically to ask the question, which people? And are they good? Are they good people? Or are they bad people? Are they foolish people, ignorant people, corrupt people? evil people. Also too, might I just add that this whole business of the hammer attack on Paul Pelosi and Biden saying that the same kind of language was used by the insurrectionists on January 6th, you're trying to create positive association between democracy and Paul Pelosi. One of the foremost beneficiaries of insider trading information was that for the people Well, of course, if the people, in your view, need Nancy Pelosi to keep on getting wealthier and wealthier, we don't want her to run out of ice cream during the lockdowns, after all. But there's also a negative association game being played because, in Biden's view, there's little to no difference between the people who came to Washington, D.C., the people who came to Washington, D.C. to protest the handling of the 2020 election and the certification of the results of the 2020 election. There's no difference between the people who came to Washington DC and the guy who hit Paul Pelosi with a hammer. There's no difference. They're all the same mentally ill, disturbed, deranged, radicalized online by conservatives in Joe Biden's America. I am not the people And you, as a listener to my podcast, are not the people. We're just people. And that's if we behave, if we keep quiet, if we say no more about it. Don't object. Don't argue. Don't debate. Don't complain. Don't protest. Don't disagree. Don't put forward ideas that Joe Biden disfavors, dislikes. Don't call for accountability to the people, as Joe Biden Sees it, then you can be people. And maybe, if you're especially good, you can be the people too. So it's a Jones effect of sorts, but it's disingenuous. The Democrats don't see January 6th as having been a mostly peaceful protest. It was an insurrection. And he's still banging that drum because it's useful to silence critics, to silence the 30% of Americans who believe that their lives are worse. Since he became president, it's been a a hard couple of years. It's been a hard few years. They just feel like it's worse, but it's not actually worse. It's actually better. You'll see. One more clip. Just one. Just one. And then we'll call it good. We'll call it a wrap on Biden's State of the Union Address 2023. Take a listen to Biden's closing remarks.
1: We're the only nation based on an idea that all of us, every one of us is created equal in the image of God, a nation that stands as a beacon to the world, a nation in a new age of possibilities. So I've come to fulfill my constitutional obligation to report in the State of the Union. And here's my report. Because the soul of this nation is strong, because the backbone, the backbone of this nation is strong, because the people of this nation are strong, the State of the Union is strong. <laughs>
0: And you don't know that God. You don't know that God. How can you say that the soul of this nation is strong? And how can you say that this nation was founded on the idea that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights when you don't know that God and when you don't want to know that God? And more to the point, when your party consistently— again and again, at every turn, disenfranchises those who do know that God, those who would tell of that God, those who would call for repentance and asking that God for forgiveness, turning away from sin. You don't turn away from sin. You celebrate it. You don't repent of sin. You make it into a lifestyle. You throw parades for it. How can the soul of The United States of America be strong? How can the State of the Union be strong when those who fear God are threatened, silenced, punished, mocked, marginalized, thrown out of the public square, penalized when they call you to repentance, when they call this country to repentance? How can you say that the State of the Union is strong? A house divided against itself cannot stand. But you would take that to say, let's all unify on Satanism. Your vision for unity involves affirming abortion and the mutilation of children, the neglect and abuse of children, the brainwashing of children, the continued breakdown of the American family, the undermining of the financial freedom of American husbands and fathers and mothers and wives. How can you say that the State of the Union is strong when you want unity on the basis of anyone who would disagree with you online being censored, being removed from the public square? How can you say that the State of the Union is strong when you vilify the people when they complain about your corruption And when they question the results of a highly irregular election, which put you in the White House, how can you say that the State of the Union is strong? The first to state his case seems correct until another comes and examines him, but you would adjourn all discussion before someone has a chance to question you and examine your claims on their merits. You should repent. Everyone applauding this should repent. Everyone affirming this should repent. The United States of America, if it would be strong, if the state of the union would be strong, the United States of America should repent. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.